especially living in this area, we are always hearing highways, cars, the din of uh, people all around. And sometimes we don't know that we've become so accustomed to the noise until we get to someplace quiet. Some years ago, I went to, uh, um, back to where we used to live in, in Georgia uh, to see some friends and take care of some, uh, some matters that still need attending to there. And I realized for the first time that my ears were just constantly ringing. I had gotten away from all of the traffic and all of the noise. And all of a sudden, the quiet was deafening. Blaise Pascal, the famous mathematician and philosopher, said this. He said, the eternal silence of these infinite spaces frightens me. When I was little and my parents would go out and I was old enough that I was able to be at home by myself, uh, and, uh, but still not quite old enough to be 100% sure that there was not some sort of something in that closet down the hall. You know that fun age? I just didn't want it to be quiet. So I would turn a TV on, not because I wanted to watch anything, but just because I needed some noise on in the background. There's a lab in Minnesota. It has been called um, the world's quietest place. It's Orfield Labs, and it's an... Uh, an anechoic chamber. So an echo chamber is a place where you go in and you speak and the sound comes back to you. An anechoic chamber absorbs sound. In fact, it's so quiet in there that sound is measured in negative decibels. Um, Stephen Orfield, who is the lab's founder, told one journalist, he said, we challenge people to sit in the chamber in the dark. The longest anyone was ever able to do it was 45 minutes. When it's quiet, ears will adapt. The quieter the room, the more things you hear. You'll hear your heart beating. Sometimes you can hear your lungs. You can hear your stomach gurgling. In an anechoic chamber, you become the sound. The room is incredibly disorienting. Not only do people hear their heartbeat, they have trouble orienting themselves and even standing. How you orient yourself is through the sounds you hear when you walk in the anechoic chamber. You don't have any, any cues. You don't have any auditory cues. You take away the perceptual cues that allow you to balance and maneuver. If you're in there for a half an hour, you have to be in a chair. Now, what's the point? Whether you live in the chaos of noise or long for its absence altogether, the question that Steve asked at the beginning of worship this morning is incredibly um, appropriate to consider today. 
Who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Who has the right to speak to you and not to speak to you, but confront you? So I said that we don't have lots of prophets or priests or kings running around in our day and age. And even to say that Jesus is our great and ultimate prophet sounds nice, but what does that mean? So I want you to take your cue where I'm going with this from the title of the sermon. As prophet, Jesus comes to make God known. Where I want to go to see this this morning is this beautiful passage in the first chapter of Hebrews. So turn there with me, if you would, Hebrews chapter 1. We're just going to read verses 1 through 4. We're in the New Testament. All of God's people said hallelujah. All right, let's stand. Hear God's word long ago at many times and in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Beloved, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, blow among us. Blow the embers of our hearts to flames. Awaken hearts that are cold and stone-like. And kindle in them the fire of the gospel. Lord Jesus, your disciples said, where else can we go? You have the words of life. Would we believe that today? Not only would we believe that, but would we listen for your voice and hear you as you speak to us? For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You see the The two things that I really want to think about with relationship to God speaking to us um, fully, finally, and ultimately. First of all, I want to just dwell on this fact that our God has chosen to speak. He's chosen to speak to us. And so um, we hear God by listening to him speak. We don't hear God by debating him or by arguing with him or by saying, that's a good point, but have you thought about this? We hear God by listening to him speak. And the second thing is that I want us to understand that because God is speaking, 
It implies that we need to hear what he has to say. Okay? First of all, the wonder that God is speaking to us. Secondly, our need that we need to hear what he has to say. Because really it is all about that, isn't it? When you think about um, God graciously revealing himself, um, that there is a need that all of us have. If our hope is in something, it is because um, we, are, we, are, we are lacking something. And so we are longing for that, uh, that lack to be met and to be fulfilled. The problem is most of us have the attention span of a gnat. When you think about it, most of us have the attention span of a gnat. And so rather than long-suffering and patience and waiting, we get bored, we get antsy, we get uh, inspired to take care of things ourselves. Moses had not been up on the mountain all that long, and all of a sudden he comes down a big golden heifer. You were gone. We didn't know you were coming back. It made you something. <laughs> Same grumbling Israelites in the wilderness. At least in Egypt, we had meals. Did you bring us out here to die? Long ago, verse 1 says, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. I'm not trying to point out new things to you this morning, really. What I'm trying to do this morning is allow our hearts to be lifted up as we, as we see and hear and, and, and take stock of the tremendous good news that is the fact that our God has inclined himself to speak to us and not to smite us. We didn't deserve to hear him speak. Not only did he speak, but he spoke gracious good news. Long ago, and in many ways, our God is, is not like the mute, the dumb, the deaf idols all around us. Not only does God hear us, but more importantly, God has revealed himself by speaking to us. Whether that's speech in events or speech through words or through people, God has revealed himself through these divine speech acts. God has allowed himself to be known. So Jen and I have three kids. Um, Samantha, our youngest, just turned two uh, last weekend. Um, as I've been a, a father now for a few years, one of the things that's always exciting about the parenting process is when your kid starts to learn how to talk. Because, I mean, initially, like, they're cute and messy, but they're yours. Um, now they're cute, messy, yours, and verbal. I'm saying this now so that when I gripe about it later, you can go back and say, hey, David, do you remember that time when you said? When a voice is heard, when words are used, a very special relationship is established through communication. 
So, so how has God spoken to us, right? Well, one of the ways that we know that God has spoken to us is through his very creation, right? Psalm 19 verse 1 reminds us that it is the heavens that declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And in this very real world, this very good creation in which we live, God has acted at various points throughout various seasons. God moved the waters of the Red Sea so that the Israelites could pass through. Manna fell from heaven. Water flowed from a rock. God has been moving in and through his creation to reveal himself. But more so than that, God has not just spoken through his creation. God has spoken through his prophets. Look at what verse 1 says again in Hebrews. In many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Deuteronomy chapter uh, chapter 18 tells us a little bit about what the people of God should expect when they hear the voice of a prophet. Listen to what God's, uh, God said of his prophets in the book of Deuteronomy. He said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in the prophet's mouth, in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now, that's a little clunky of a translation there. What he's saying is, if you don't listen to my prophet, it's like you're not listening to me. There are consequences then for not listening to me. On and on, throughout the witness of the Old Testament, we see this fact. God has communicated through his means to his people. Um, So this is, as we kind of gaze upon the glory and the beauty of this truth, listen to this. God has not left us to conjecture, to surmise, to guess, to speculate what he is all about. Do you understand this? God has not left it up to our imaginations to wonder who he is and what he's about. God has said it through the words of the prophets and the written word in his law. And this This fact is of utmost importance to us in our text today. What was said in the past matters. What was said in the past um, does not go away. It doesn't get wiped out. It matters. It's all been part of a continuous flow of thought up until the moment when God fully and finally spoke through Jesus. There's a funny graphic uh, that floats around on the internet. I think that Jen has it saved on her phone uh, and sends it to me periodically. Um, the image is of a wife um, having said many, many, many things to her husband and then says to him, you don't listen to a word that I say. And the husband thinks to himself, that's a really weird way to begin a conversation. God has always been speaking. The problem is, his people have a hard time listening. God has always been speaking, but his people have a hard time listening. 
The fact that God speaks shows us that there is important things for us to hear. God isn't making small talk. God isn't just passing the time. When God speaks, it is of utmost importance because it is an encounter with the divine and there are things that we must hear when he utters them. So let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Akin to what Steve was was exhorting you earlier, is there time, is there space in your life for you to listen to God speaking? Not just to be inspired, although certainly his words have inspired greatness and grandeur. Not only um, to be comforted, though certainly his words are comforting. But do you make the space for God to speak to you, for God to challenge you, for God to show you that what he knows is right and what you presume may be wrong? Do you make the time and do you make the space for God to speak to you? And more importantly, even than that, do you listen when he does? There's a lot of things that we could talk about, about the need for silence, the need for mindfulness, the need for space, the need to turn down Spotify or the radio or the blathering people on the television and to not constantly fill our days with noise and activity because when we're hearing everything, there's a good chance we're hearing nothing. As Richard Pratt used to remind us young seminarians, You can't say everything when you try to say anything because if you try to say everything when you say anything, you'll end up saying nothing at all. Preacher, take note. Do you listen to God's voice in the scriptures? Do you listen to God's voice through his spirit moving within you? Do you listen to God's voice as godly people come around you um, where God is using these people um, to both comfort and confront us as we grow in godliness in Jesus? Are we listening? Are we attuned to the fact that God is still speaking not new things, as in new revelation, but true things is as in the way he has built the world to operate. How are you hearing God speak to you? There's a, a story about uh, Ingmar Bergman, uh, the celebrated Swedish filmmaker. Um, he recounts that one day while he was listening to some music by Stravinsky, he had a vision of a 19th century cathedral. And in the vision... Bergman found himself wandering about a great building and finally coming before a picture of Christ. Realizing the importance of the picture, Bergman said to the picture, speak to me. I will not leave this cathedral until you speak to me. But of course, the picture did not speak. That same year, he produced the film, The Silence a film about characters who despair of ever finding God. Here was Bergman's problem. 
Bergman's problem was he was looking at the wrong picture. You see, he needed to listen to the massive eloquence of the Christ of the scriptures. In these last days, Hebrews says, God has spoken to us by his son. Bergman, like you and I, needs to see the eloquence of Christ's character and speech and actions and above all, the eloquence of the cross for there speaks salvation. It's not in paintings and it's not in pictures. It's not in the approval of people. It's not in your bank account. It's not in your job. It's not in your kids and how well they turned out or how well you parented. It's not in the type of car that you drive or the subdivision in which you live or the zip code where your mail is sent. Dear friends, the only thing that can speak salvation to you is Jesus. Nowhere else will you find it. And anywhere else you look for it will leave you just as silent and hollow and disappointed as that painting did Bergman. So what do we need to hear God say? What is it that we need to hear God say? There's a, there's a comfort that I find as a, uh, as a preacher um, in the book of Acts Acts chapter 5 is one of the places where you see this. In Acts chapter 5, verse 42, it says this, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. These couple of verses here in the beginning of Hebrews are, uh, are verses that soar. All we have to do is just speak of them. And they cause our hearts to soar and be lifted because all we have to do is talk about Jesus. See, if I'm going to stand up here and give you a sermon about all the things you ought to be doing, all the ways you ought to be feeling, I'm not doing a very good job of preaching because my charge is not to preach what you ought to be. My job, my charge is to preach what Jesus has done. When your eyes see Christ, when your heart is moved by Christ, when your heart is lifted by Jesus, all of a sudden then, then life starts making sense. So hear the eloquence, hear the divine speech act of our God and hear it with ears that would say we need to hear what God had to say through his son. Okay? Listen. There's at least six categories that I'm going to talk about today that the, the writer of the Hebrews unfolds as we look at Jesus, this full and final word of God made flesh dwelling among us. Look at it. Verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, first category, whom he appointed as the heir of all things. Here's the first glorious thing that we hear God say through Christ, that Jesus, Jesus is the inheritor. Jesus is the inheritor. Jesus, the divine son of God, is the inheritor of all that is the father's. But listen, 
It's more than just a statement of fact. When, when the writer of the Hebrews says that Jesus is the one who inherits these things, he is making a very, very specific claim, and it goes back to Psalm 2. Remember when we've studied the Psalms before, we have said that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the gateways into understanding the Psalms. Psalms 1 and Psalm 2 are the gateways into understanding the Psalms, into unlocking all that the Psalms are about. And in Psalm 2, and uh, in Psalm 2 and verse 8, listen to what it says. Speaking of the divine king, the one who will ultimately come, the one who is the hope of all of God's people. Verse 8 says this, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. The promise in the psalm is to the one who would come as the divinely appointed king that the nations... All of the nations would be his inheritance. Jesus inherits all of this. It's it's all his. That means that all that is created, all that is done, all that is good and true and beautiful will belong to him. But, But Jesus doesn't just inherit the plants and the trees and the poetry. Jesus inherits his people as well. Not only is he the creator, not only is he the redeemer, we are his inheritance. So that's the first thing. Here's the second glorious thing that we see see God saying that through Christ, Jesus is the creator. Look, um, whom he appointed as the heir of all things, through whom, through whom he also created the world. Jesus, the divine word of God, the son, is the agent through whom the entire universe of space and time was created. Jesus created every species of dust in the hundred thousand million galaxies of the universe. He created every atom, quarks and the leptons, electrons and neutrons. Right now, the the dirt that NASA is probing on Mars, Jesus created it. The moons of Jupiter, Jesus created. Jesus is the grand and glorious framer and architect and creator of the universe. Here's the third thing that we see, is that Jesus is the sustainer. Now, I want you to look Uh, towards the end of verse 3. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So not only is he the inheritor of all these good created things, not only is he the architect, the one who who created this stance that we see, he he is the one that sustains it. Now, some of you have seen uh, in various sculptures and when you study Greek mythology, um, you've seen uh, the pictures of Atlas holding the world on his back. Jesus is not sustaining the world like a dead weight. Jesus isn't sustaining the world like a, a dead weight. He's not passively sustaining all the things that are in the universe, but rather actively sustaining all the things in the universe. How is he doing this? He's doing this by his very spoken word. Have you ever thought for a minute of of what the word universe actually means when you break it down? Uni, one, verse, word. 
Everything exists because he continues to speak. The Greek word that's being used here in Hebrews is not the word for revelation, logos. It's the word for speech, for breath, for declaration. Just as the universe was called into existence with a spoken word, so also the universe is sustained in its existence by a spoken word. Beloved, would you, would you just be, uh, would you be awestruck for a moment by the glory of this fact that Jesus is both creator and sustainer? Not only does he form galaxies by his very spoken word, but he is also able to create in us clean hearts. And according to the apostle, the apostle Paul, if anyone's, in, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The glory of the gospel that we can bring nothing and from Christ is in us formed everything. He created the the universe out of nothing. He created the world out of nothing and he brings from our hearts glory out of ruin. That Jesus sustains us is not just true of our cosmos and our world and gravity and oceans, but it's true of our lives as well. Beloved, listen. Jesus sustains our tired lives. He sustains our wounded hearts. He sustains us in our grief and tears. He sustains us even as we are angry and impatient. He sustains us as we grieve. He sustains us as we rejoice. He's not passively disconnected from you and from me and from our lives. He's actively sustaining it. And if he stops speaking, we stop being. Here's the fourth thing. He's the radiator. Not like what's in your car. He's the radiator. Look, look at what it says. He, verse three, uh, the first part of verse three, he is the radiance of the glory of God. All right? Now, here's a quick quiz. I know it's Sunday. School's not supposed to be in session. Kids, here's a quick quiz for you. How much light does the moon make on its own? None. What does the moon do? It reflects, right? The moon reflects. The text does not say that Jesus is the reflection of the glory of God. The text says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is not like the moon simply reflecting. Jesus is like the sun and together with the Father is glorious and radiating glory and light. Jesus is part of the source of the creating and radiating glory of the Father. Here's the fifth thing. The fifth thing, remember I said there are six, right? We're on number five. The fifth glorious thing that we hear God say through Christ is that Jesus is the exact representation. He's the representer, okay? So when a coin would be made, it would be uh, first a die would be set, and then the coin would be cast, right? And so the, the underlying phrase here is that if you had that coin, there is no difference between the image that's on the coin and the image that's in the die. He is the exact representation. Okay? Here's where this is important. When you say he's the exact imprint, 
Jesus is the same in his being as the Father. But there's still an important distinction. Both Christ the Son and God the Father exist separately, just like the die and the coin. This is part of that fun mystery of the Trinity. They are same. They are different. They are one. They are three. And if you don't understand that and can't visualize that, don't worry. No one else has been able to explain that really well either. You're in good company. But it's still true. When you take these ideas together, that Jesus is the, the radiator and the representer of the Father, we learn much about what? We learn about who God is. We learn about who God is. When you see Christ, you see the Father. Jesus is the glorious embodied word of the Father. When we see him, we know just what the God of the universe is like. We know how he thinks. We know how he talks. We know how he relates to his people. God has spoken in his son. If you ever want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus isn't the one in the asbestos suit trying to hold back the wrath and the fury of God. Jesus is the embodiment of God. He is the radiance of God. He is the exact imprint of the Father. Now, over the next two weeks, I'm going to give these last two elements of Hebrews 1 some more care and time. Like when Jesus made perfect sacrifice for sin, that's going to open us up next week to why Jesus came as our priest, because he came to make us clean, and then sat down at the right hand of God, assuming the throne as the king. Why did Jesus come as a king? He came to make us his. For now, as we close, I just want to consider this. How do we deal with the fact that God has spoken in this way? There's a really powerful quote that N.T. Wright has in his book, For All God's Worth. Listen to, what this, listen to this quote, okay? Here's what he says. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? that fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those two things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. We condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between because we cannot say in good conscience that Christianity is nothing, nor can we say, really, that the hurricane became human, that fire became flesh, that the creator of life became life itself. 
Either our hope is in that fact that Jesus is this full and final declaration of God. Our hope, I'm sorry, that's not real snow. I know you're disappointed. That's not real snow. And if your hope is not in who Jesus says he is, then your hope is just as fake as that fake snow. If he came as the prophet of God to declare who God is and make him known, what are we going to say in response? We either have to say he's none of these things or recognize that if he is these things, he's the one who gets to call the shots. Here's an illustration that Tim Keller is fond of sharing. I think it's really powerful. Listen to it. Um, Now, some of you, again, the, the kids that are in here and hopefully are still paying attention, right? You're good. Um, on maps, you know how there's a legend and it says um, this length on the map is equal to so many miles, okay? So I'm going to give you your legend, okay? Are you ready? Do you see how thick this sheet of paper is? All right. This sheet of paper is equal to 93 million miles, okay? So the thickness of one sheet of paper is equal to 93 million miles. Are you with me so far? Okay? So, here's what I want you to envision. If the distance between the earth and the sun, which is 93 million miles, is equal to the thickness of a sheet of paper, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star, that is the earth and the nearest star, would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. Wait. The distance across the galaxy, okay, the distance across the diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. Our galaxy is just one little speck of dust in the universe as it is. If there is a person who holds all of that together with the word of his power, his pinky as it were, is this the person that you invite into your life to be your personal assistant? Your co-pilot. Beloved, this, this is where our God has spoken. But Jesus, the hurricane has become human. Fire has become flesh. The one who holds all of the cosmoses together by the single spoken word of his power has condescended and invited us to come near. That means he doesn't give us advice. That means he gets to rule. That means when he speaks, we listen because we need to hear what he has to say. Why did Jesus come as our prophet? Jesus came as our prophet to make God known. Are you listening? 